thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. Good morning. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and everyone across across the great South Africa. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Of course, now this is your opportunity to satisfy your curiosity about the world we live in and find out more about the weird and wonderful laws of nature and the intricacies of the human body. Uh, first up, Chris, let's talk about Ebola. What is the latest as far as the first case in the UK? Well, it's the first case we know about, of course. Yes, this lady was a nurse. I say was, um, she still is because she's currently in hospital, but she was helping in West Africa in one of the affected countries, um, helping to treat Ebola victims. She flew back via Casablanca to Heathrow Airport uh, just ahead of New Year, and while she was screened at the point of exit and also screened at the point of entry to to, uh, the UK, she was not symptomatic and didn't have a temperature or anything at the time, and so she was allowed to, to go home. While she was at home, she then was diagnosed with Ebola because she was self-monitoring. She found she had a temperature, and when they then did her test, they said, yep, you've got Ebola. She first of all went to Glasgow Hospital in the north of the country, but they don't have a a full isolation facility there, so she was flown down to London to the Royal Free Hospital in North London, where they have a complete isolation facility there. She's been put into isolation, and at the moment she is okay, and because of her medical training and her involvement with the condition, the doctors have, have been able to have a very frank conversation with her about what her prognosis is and the best way to manage her case. And at the moment, what they're saying is, although we've got no clear information, they haven't confirmed one way or the other, is that the most likely treatment that's going to be given, or which is being given, is to give antibodies. In other words, you take blood from a patient who has recovered from Ebola and you get the antibodies out of their bloodstream they're putting those antibodies into her bloodstream the idea being that those antibodies then circulate bind onto and neutralize any circulating Ebola virus there's also talk of them using some kind of experimental drug we know there's a handful of drugs which have been tested on Ebola victims but not subject yet to a a clinical trial but which do appear to have some activity so they're also talking about using one of those we don't know which one We'll be watching those developments very, very keenly. I mean, uh, it's it's extraordinary the impact that Ebola has had. Uh, So the lines are open. Any questions you have for the Naked Scientist? Aaron is in Alberton. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Good good, good morning. My question is centered around this animal, the chameleon, which changes according to the vicinity stroke environment where it is. uh, if, If it's on a tree, it changes to the color of that tree, another environment, it keeps on you. Well, what is happening in the skin, stroke cells, or whatever the case may be? Hello, Aaron. Chameleons, yeah. in common with a number of other uh, animals in nature, which include things like cuttlefish and some fish, they have in their skin structures called chromatophores. These yeah. are specialized cells which have inside them little packets of color, in other words, a pigment. 
wired up to the nervous system and also the blood. And what this means is that when the animal wants to change the colour of its skin, using signals from the nervous system or hormones in the blood, it can activate and deactivate different combinations of these chromatophores which are of different colours and in the same way that your television set uses the combination of red and green and um, okay, blue yeah. pixels, it, it mixes those different colours together to produce a colour that you see. The chameleon is doing exactly the same thing. It has a top layer of uh, these chromatophores which are one colour, they're a red colour, it has a layer underneath of xanthophores, a yellow colour, it has a layer under that of uh, iridophores which are a blue colour, and then on the bottom it's got some melanophores which are a browny um, black colour. And by selectively activating different combinations of them it can produce all the different colours. It's a myth that chameleons blend in with their environment though, they don't do that, they actually use their colour to act as a visual cue or a signal to other chameleons or potential predators what sort of mood they're in and where, where, whether it's therefore safe to approach or whether they're feeling fruity and want to mate and so on. So they use a whole range of different colours in that way but it's, it's not true that they actually camouflage themselves this way. Okay, Aaron, thank you so much for your call. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Uh, Jen is in Bryanston. Hi, Jen. Hi, Dr. Chris. Uh, I want to know why pigeons jerk their heads back and forth when they walk. Oh, hi, Jen. It's very uh, characteristic, isn't it, when they move their head forward and then they move their body under their head to jerk forward and then they move their head forward again, why do they describe that strange back and forth motion? The reason is that their eyes are on the sides of their heads. Why should that be important? Well, when you've got eyes that look sideways, you have a very large amount of what's called parallax error. The light coming in from the world is therefore is coming in from the side and if you were to move smoothly forward, then the whole world would flow past your eyes and it would be very difficult to keep track or focus on anything at once, at one time. So what the pigeon does is move its head forward, fixate its vision or its gaze on a target, and then it moves its body under its head, keeping its head locked solid so that it can maintain steady-state vision on what it's looking at as it moves. Thank you. Okay, cheers, Jen. Thank you, Jen, in Bryanston this morning. Alan is uh, calling from Hilborough. Hi, Alan. Morning, Chris. Hi, I just wanted to know, I read recently that the American Navy are testing a new weapon in 2016 that fires a projectile at Mach 7 without using any explosives. How, how does that work? I'm not aware of the projectile itself, so if you happen to have a reference for this, so you could perhaps send me details, I could uh, look it up. But I think certainly it's actually don't just the weapon itself is called a railgun. Oh, right, OK. Well, I was going to say uh, that probably one other way to propel things is to use magnetism, and that's what these rail guns use. What you do is you have an electromagnetic force, and you, instead of just having one massive magnet which accelerates one projectile once, what you do is instead have a sequence of little projectiles which each individually go faster and faster and faster, and they hit the one in front of them, and as they hit the one in front of them, they impart all of their momentum to the next one in the chain, which then also accelerates itself and passes on the momentum that it gains plus the momentum it already had to the next one in the chain. And it's like a domino effect where the energy increases with each domino that falls and the ultimate 
um, impact is with the final projectile, which is then launched out of the gun, having gained all of this energy from all of these uh, initial uh, impacts. And I suspect that's how they're doing it. Okay, thanks very much, Chris. Cheers, Alan. Um, thank you for your call this morning. Uh, Jeff is in Noordgesig. Hi, Jeff. Hi, good morning, uh, Doctor. Just a question around the uh, fireworks trauma that our pets are currently going through. I just wanted to know if birds, wild or pets, uh, captivated us are, are prone to the same stresses that dogs go through. Um, that's basically my question. Hello, Jeff. I think it's almost certain that any animals which can hear and are sensitive to vibrations and sounds will be perturbed by loud noises because it's not just dogs that have sensitive hearing. Cats do too, birds do too. So I think it's very likely that you will see lots of animals which alter their behaviour in response to human-made noises. We know, if you look in the ocean, for example, that when people do seismic exploration of the seafloor, because the way in which we explore what's under the seabed to look for things like gas and oil deposits, is that you send shockwaves through the Earth's uh, interior, and they bounce off and reflect off different structures within the Earth, which tells geologists what the structure of the inner Earth is, and therefore where there might be gas. It's a bit like doing an ultrasound on a human body. We know that, that these sound waves travel through the oceans, and certainly squid can, can get damage to their hearing system this way. We've also got evidence that uh, marine mammals like whales and dolphins may be perturbed by boat propellers, which, uh, because the sound travels so well through water, can disturb their sense of hearing as well. So I don't think it's just confined to, to birds uh, um, or dogs or cats. I think that human-made noise is a big intrusion and a big problem for nature. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Uh, Rita in Parkhurst. Hi, Rita. Hello. Hello. Yes, Hello. please go ahead. Yeah. Hello, Chris. Um, I attended um, uh, um, I, a couple of years ago, I attended a presentation you gave. You came over here and um, you gave this presentation to an audience in St. John's, which I attended. And one of the experiments that you did was to show how you could freeze, virtually freeze dry anything. And that included a body, a corpse. Hello? Yes, I'm listening, Rita. Please carry on. Okay. Um, and you said that this was a very green method of disposing of a body, which obviously it is. And you said this was actually used in Sweden and I think in Japan. Is there anything else you can tell me about this? Because I mentioned this to various people here, and nobody seems to know anything about it. I even, right. I even phoned um, an undertaker's one day, and they were just, gaga, they'd never heard of it. Yeah, well, what people are, are suggesting... And I don't know if you can actually do this commercially yet, but there, there is a form of environmentally friendly funeral, yeah. which you might be able to have, where yeah. the approach is that instead of cremating a person, because right. when you cremate someone, you have to effectively boil a lot of water because the human body is two-thirds water. Yeah. And water contains enormous amounts of energy, and therefore you've got to burn a lot of hydrocarbons, and it's quite polluting to yeah. cremate someone. Would it therefore, the theory goes, be more environmentally sound to freeze them with liquid nitrogen mm. and then use sound waves to break the person up into a sort of, 
human shrapnel, which you could then scatter like ashes, but it yeah. would be cleaner. Yeah. Yeah. And th there is certainly a move to try and do this. Whether or not you can avail yourself of this in South Africa at the moment, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and is, energetically speaking, the arguments in, in favour of whether or not it's more environmentally friendly come down to whether or not it takes more energy to burn the person or to make the liquid nitrogen because yeah. it takes quite a lot of energy to make liquid nitrogen in the first place. So oh. I think it's sort of hanging in a balance but it comes down to hydrocarbon emissions and whether you want to be environmentally friendly from that point of view. But it, it's much of a muchness as to whether you're going to save a huge amount of energy this way. Yeah, okay, thank you. Is there any chance you're going to come out here again? Well, we'll have to ask the uh, the, the powers that be, <laughs> but, but there, there is there is I can tell you that there is some discussion going on about the Rand show for 2015, oh, oh, okay. um, and so and and possibly with the UK Foreign Office about mm. coming to Cape Town as well. So Cape oh. Towners who always complain to me that I always end up in Joburg, yeah. <laughs> Cape, <laughs> Cape Talk listeners, we may be doing something later in the um, I think probably the. April period, mm. so we'll let you know, don't worry. Okay, all right. well all I can say is that that presentation I attended at St John's a couple of years ago was absolutely amazing. It had the whole audience enthralled. It wasn't only informati informative, it was very, very entertaining as well. All right, Rita, thank you so much for your call, uh, Rita, in uh, Parkhurst. Uh, Chris, there's an email uh, question for you from Kay. Um, it says, I'm in my mid-60s. All my life I was troubled with excessive body hair, which was probably genetic. Now I find that I've lost all the hair on my legs and underarm, which is a blessing, uh, says Kay. I would like to know how on the same body have I not lost the hair on my arms and face. Please put my misery to an end. It's a good question and I can't answer that um, <laughs> immediately without knowing a little bit more about it, but there is a condition called alopecia and in the condition alopecia the immune system attacks hair follicles and it takes away hair. Now you can get a condition called, areo called uh, alopecia totalis which is where this happens all over the body, but there is a more defined phenomenon called alopecia areata from the French word um, arete to stop and this is where you get just a small zone of hair loss. It may be that this is some sort of funny combination of the two effects where you've got hair loss which is uh, total in some parts of the body but stops on just those parts of the body. It may not be an immune phenomenon at all, it may just be an age related thing because everyone's hair does get thinner as you get older and if you have less hair in those places to start with you've got less to lose and therefore you're more likely to run out of hair there than you do in other places which started with more hair so it could be a combination of any of those things but without knowing a little bit more about the case it's really hard for me to say all right, uh, thank you, Kay. I hope that to some extent uh, answers your question. And uh, Stephen Curtis, my colleague, wanted to know from you, Chris, what is the quickest and best way to make beer cold? Um, <laughs> I'd say the best way would probably be to use liquid nitrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, what you would need to do is to put the beer into probably a glass and then you'd need to put the glass not probably in, but very close to the surface of some liquid nitrogen. And then the 
cooling effect of the liquid nitrogen would would cool the air around the beer glass to very low temperatures. So if you had a sort of polystyrene dewer or a tube and you had some liquid nitrogen in the bottom and a sort of uh, stand, a point in the bottom that you could stand the glass on that wasn't uh, in the liquid nitrogen but just above it, you could then have very cold air in there which would very quickly cool down the beer. Uh, I think if you immersed the beer in the liquid nitrogen, the problem would be that it would freeze onto the glass and then it wouldn't taste so good and you want this to be cool, <laughs> cool but not that cool. So I'd say that's probably the best way to cool it quickly. All right, fantastic, Stephen. I hope you're listening. Uh, Mandy in Germiston. Hi, Mandy. Hi. Hi, Doctor. Uh, I would like to know, I have a very good friend. She's in her 70s and just out of the blue, she has lost all her uh, sense of smell and taste. Absolutely nothing. She's just been to a neurologist and he said he can't help her. He doesn't know what is wrong. There's nothing he can do for her. And she can't taste or she can't smell a thing. How old is your friend? 77. Mm. It does become more common as we get older. And what many people don't realise is that what we call our sense of taste is almost exclusively down to our sense of smell. So if you lose your sense of smell, you also lose the vast majority of your tasting ability because what yeah. happens when you eat food is that the food goes into your mouth and gets warmed by the heat of your mouth and mixed with saliva and this releases from the food volatile chemicals that go up the back of your nose and hit the part of your nose that does the smelling but because we've just put food in our mouth and we're experiencing a smell sensation the body and the brain assumes that must be a taste and so it ascribes all of the sensation to taste but in fact it's a smell so loss of the smell system means you then lose the taste system as well therefore I think probably given that her smell as she is saying my smell system has gone I think that's the reason and that needs to be investigated but it does become more common as we get older. People do say, my taste is not what it was, and they mean by that, my smell is not what it was so, either. But this neurologist who she saw and paid a lot of money to see him uh, just simply said, there's nothing I can do. Is there, is there absolutely nothing that they can help her with? Well, there's always, it's always possible to do something, even if that's just reassurance. The reason that most people lose their sense of smell is because something damages the olfactory epithelium, which yeah, is the flat sheet of nerve cells at the top of the nose that does yeah. the smelling. Now, that can be as trivial as a cold. Uh, it can also be more severe, and things like trauma can do this. When people have head injuries or they bash their head or they have a car accident, it can damage the nerve uh, pathway that connects the olfactory epithelium to the brain. And if you sever the nerves, then you lose the smell sensation, certainly temporarily, possibly permanently. And then no, other things... to be permanent. He said yes. it's permanent and she'll never be able to smell again. But what worried me was that he, he didn't sort of say, well, we'll try this or we'll try that. He just left her and... She nearly burnt her house down because she couldn't smell the food in the pan burning. Right. And, uh, and she nearly set her kitchen alight. So she's, well, she's I think it would be worth her while, if she's not happy with that, with that uh, answer, to ask if it may be possible to have a scan and, yes. and uh, see if there's anything structural that can be picked up as to yes. what might be blocking That's access of the air to the, the olfactory system. Okay. Like All right, Mandy, thank you so much. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, we have time to squeeze in a final question from Michael in Cape Town. Hi, Michael. Oh, hi, guys. Hi. Um, Mike, let me switch the radio down. My question um, relates back to the Ebola discussion you had at the beginning. Yes. Um, I would presume that the medical staff um, use very, very strict protocols in dealing with 
with Ebola patients. So the question then is, how do they become infected? One can understand how locals who know very little about the disease become infected, but people wearing kind of masks and gloves and cloaks and stuff, how do they actually become infected? Have they understood that? Hello, Michael. That's one of the big questions that we all want to know because it, it suggests that there's a chink in our defences somewhere and we need to try and plug that gap. The answer to your question really is that the people that we're dealing with who are very sick from Ebola, because they're very sick from Ebola, are very infectious because they have lots and lots of virus leaving their body in all of their body secretions and body fluids. Therefore, the exposure to the medical personnel is very, very high. And although they're taking precautions with protective equipment, if you are not absolutely scrupulous with the way in which you clean up and take off that medical equipment you can very easily contaminate yourself with what's on the medical equipment and that's very easy to do when you're tired you've been working hard or the person you're dealing with is very unwell and therefore um, you're in a hurry to try and do as much as you can for them it's possible to make minor mistakes and when you've got something which just a handful of particles of something which is smaller than the particle of smoke coming off the end of a, a cigarette which is how big an Ebola virus is you can imagine you you don't have to make a very big mistake to potentially contaminate yourself and then infect yourself that said it is quite hard to catch Ebola fortunately which is why we haven't seen as many cases as we would have done were it much easier to catch the virus Great. Thank you so much for your call, Michael. Uh, Michael calling us uh, from Cape Town. And thank you so much, uh, as ever, to the ever-brilliant Naked Scientist, Chris Smith. Thank you so much. And he'll be back, of course, next Friday. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.